Right, so we're looking at the requirements of the second commandment, which is question number 50 in the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Last week, we began looking at the second commandment, and you may remember we looked at the introduction to the second commandment. So let's confess what that question is. It's question 49 that we did last week. Simply says, question 49, which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands that love me and keep my commandments. So in introducing the second commandment to you last week, I began by showing you how it differs from the first commandment. Some people say that when it says not to worship idols, it's just telling us not to worship other gods. That when the second commandment says not to worship idols, that's what it's telling us. You recall that the first commandment tells us that not to worship any other gods. And of course, that means that we should not worship images of those other gods because we're worshiping other gods if we worship images of them. But the second commandment is actually telling us not to worship the true God by worshiping images or likenesses of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. We looked at the underlying principle involved in this prohibition, which is spelled out for us in Deuteronomy 12, where the Lord commands his people that they are not to worship him in the way that the people around them or the people that had been the former inhabitants of the land of Canaan worship their gods. Instead, we're to stick to what he has commanded. We're not to add to what he has given us to do, nor are we to take away from what he has given us to do. I told you that this is sometimes called the regulative principle of worship because it regulates worship according to God's word. We, do, we are to do what he has told us to do in our worship instead of coming up with our own creative ways or doing what other people might have done traditionally or something that we make up, uh, that people that are around us make up some new idea to worship God. Today, as we move on to look at the second commandment in more detail, we're going to proceed by looking first at what God requires of us in the second commandment. And then next week, we'll plan to look at what is forbidden in the second commandment. You may remember that I told you that the catechism is very helpful with the commandments because in dealing with all of them, it tells us, it explains to us what is
50. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. We are to be faithful to worship God in all the ways that he has commanded. In looking at this today, I want to begin by exhorting you to be diligent in worship. And then I want to look at the specific ways that are appointed for us to worship in our day. Of course, it's different from the Old Testament. I add the words in our day because we're not meant to observe all the ordinances that were required of God's people in the Old Covenant or from Genesis to Revelation, we might say even. There was a silly woman that wrote a book about her effort to try to keep every commandment in the Bible a little while back. And uh, she ran into all kinds of difficulties because she was trying to keep the the Old Testament regulations as well as the New Testament ones. And it's very silly because when it comes to worship, there was a huge change in what was required in our approach to God. We approach him totally different now that, as we saw this morning, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's come and he's offered his sacrifice. So there's no more priests. There's no more sacrifices, all of those things. There's been a complete change. So today, we're looking at what he requires of us now, not what he required of us in the past. We can learn from looking at those things, but we don't keep the ordinances of the Old Testament. When Acts 2 opens, we have the record. Um, We're going to look at Acts 2, by the way, where we have a record of what the church did when they first began to worship in the New Testament way. So this is when Peter first preached the gospel in the New Testament. When When Acts 2 opens, we have the record of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost, when Jews from all over the world had come up to Jerusalem to worship God. On that marvelous Sunday... 120 of Jesus' disciples, including all the apostles, were assembled in the upper room. And suddenly, in a very conspicuous way, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them so that they, they, it got the attention of all of the, the pilgrims there that had come from all over the world. There was a sound of a great, mighty rushing wind, and there were tongues of fire visibly, that came down upon the disciples of Jesus. And to the astonishment of everyone that was there, these Galileans began to praise God in the language of the many nations from whence these Jews had come. Many different nations. Peter then preached to them and told them that they had crucified their own Messiah, but that God had raised him from the dead and declared him to be Lord and Christ. When the Jews heard this, some of them were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They rejected their own Messiah, and they were stung by that. Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and that they would receive the Holy Spirit. It is at this point that we begin our scripture reading, which tells us, about the conversion of these Jews and about the worship into which the apostles led them. Okay, so as soon as 
they, they came to faith, they entered into New Testament kind of worship. And uh, a lot of people think that when they don't believe that God actually reveals things to people, they think that the church just kind of gradually developed their worship over the years and came up with the things that they do in the New Testament. But we see here that right from the very beginning that they were doing the things that uh, we do today. So, um, and that's how it should be. Of course, now the church, many churches have added all kinds of extra things. That's what we're not supposed to do. That's what we're looking at next week. We're looking this week, what has he given us to do? What is it that we're to do when we worship the Lord in the New Testament? So we'll begin the reading then in Acts 2, verse 40. Here is the word of the Lord. Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he, Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Now remember, we're looking at this passage in order that we might consider what God requires of us in the second commandment. When the second commandment tells us not to worship idols, it implies that instead we ought to worship God as he has told us. And the first thing I want you to see from the example of the fledgling church is that you are to give yourself fully to the worship that God has appointed. Look at what it says in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship the breaking of the bread, and in prayers. Of course, you ought to give yourself wholeheartedly to these things. It is disrespectful to God to worship Him in some lukewarm and half-hearted way. He is God Almighty. He is your Creator. And He is worthy of all honor and glory and blessing. Everything you have, even your very life, is from him. And much more than that, he is your redeemer. He is the God who sent his son to bear our sins on the cross. These Jews were desperate when they realized that they were sinners, that they had crucified their own Messiah, and now they had gladly received the gospel. They had been forgiven for all of their sin by the very one that they had crucified, even by means of him being crucified. Now they were eager to praise God who had redeemed them in a way that would please God. They didn't want to praise him in a way that wouldn't please him. They wanted to praise him according to his will. Now, so have you also been forgiven? Then the question would be, should you not also be eager to worship the God who has redeemed you and forgiven you? You have just as much reason 
for extreme thanksgiving as they did. Indifference about praising Him is inappropriate. Remember, He is present when we worship Him. God is in our midst. He sees your heart. Other people may not be able to see your lack of interest and devotion, but He can. In Malachi, He speaks to His people about bringing lame sacrifices before Him. He tells of how displeased He is about this and how unacceptable it is and of how he rejects that lame worship, as we might call it, with lame sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, confess your sin and ask him to help you. Ask him to give you the grace that you need to bring in an appropriate sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. This is what the second commandment requires of you. Give yourself fully to the worship that God has appointed. Like the fledgling church, you are to continue in the ordinances that Jesus has commanded. You are not to be on again, off again in your worship. You are to continue in it. If you are born again, if you know that you have been redeemed, no one will be able to keep you away from the worship of God. If you, you will want to pray, you will want to hear the word, you will want to come to the Lord's Supper, it will, be, it will not be necessary to drag you to worship. You will have a song in your heart to praise our God. An avid sports fan would sooner miss the game than you would miss worship. It becomes something that is very important to you. Not to say that believers never have a problem with a cold heart. You see, it's, it's, it's true. They, they did in the early church. Um, in Hebrews 10.25, the admonition was given to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. Shows that there was a problem in those days. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If we're going to continue faithfully in the worship of God, if you're going to do that, worship is not something that you just fit in around your other things. You're, you have to fit everything else around worship instead. You know, there was uh, someone that uh, I wanted to meet with this week that I've been thinking about meeting with for about um, probably eight weeks or 12 weeks. I don't know how long it's been. And I realize this all the time. And there's someone that I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe I'll meet with so-and-so this week. And it just never happens unless I make an appointment. And then I work things around that meeting instead of saying, well, if I have time on that afternoon, or if I have time, on, I never will have time. And uh, you know that it's the same way with your prayers, for example. If you don't have a set time of prayer, you're probably not going to pray. If you don't have a set time for family worship, you're probably not going to do family worship. We need to have that kind of structure. The worship of God is the single most important thing we do. The public worship of God. Jesus redeemed us in order that we might be God's worshiper. It's not an optional thing for a believer. So Jesus calls us together each Lord's Day. Um, it's, it, it is very important. I, I've sometimes seen people to say, oh, well, you know, a friend came by and so I couldn't. Well, you know, why not say, well, yeah, it's, you're coming by. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on my way to church. Do you want to come with me instead of just saying, oh, well, I guess I won't go now. You, you know, you've got something to do. You wouldn't do that if you had a doctor's appointment. You wouldn't invite them to the doctor's appointment, but you would go on to the appointment. You wouldn't say, oh, well, my friend came by and call it just not show up especially if they were going to charge you for your appointment. <laughs> but uh, you need to do much more than just show up. 
That's just the start. That's the ABCs. Note well that the fledgling church not only continued in worship, which is what we just looked at, but they also continued steadfastly in the worship that God appointed. That means that they gave themselves to it. You know the difference between giving yourself to something and just doing something, don't you? It's a, it's a big difference. Some worshipers are like the kid that's forced to take piano lessons. You know, he shows up, practices maybe if he's made to practice, and, but he's not into it. He's not really looking to get better at it. He's not really, really striving. He's not into it. You can see this difference with doctors. I have had, I had a doctor once. <laughs> Seems like it was a long time ago. That was really into it. And you would go to him and he'd be drawing you little pictures and tell you what was going on. And he was, he was all excited. And if there was something he didn't know about, he'd go researching it and try to figure out what's wrong. And I had another doctor that's like, why are you here? Oh, okay. And he's, he looks up on his computer. Okay, take this pill, you know, or whatever. And he's, go on. He doesn't, he doesn't care. He's got no interest. And sadly, um, that seems to have kind of become the norm. It shouldn't be the norm for us as Christians. We continue in it. Yeah, the guy continues as a doctor, but we've got to continue steadfastly. It's got to be something that we're really into. You become very bored with things if you're not into them. Because, you know, it's just kind of like you're just hanging out. It's a pain. You don't get, you're not striving. You're not going anywhere with it. You're not learning anything new. You're just going through the motions. If you really give yourself to worship, you will prepare for it. I remember a number of years ago, uh, our, our neighbor next door, he was, he was really, really into hockey. And he was so into it that if he had a game, then he would actually go to rest I mean, he was a kid that was always doing stuff, but he would rest up for the game because he was so into the game that he wanted to be at his peak performance and everything. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't stay up late before the game. He would make sure that he, he was eating stuff that would help him. And everything was because he was into it. It wasn't something that, oh, yeah, oh, yeah I'm supposed to go to a hockey game tomorrow. Oh, well, whatever. You know, he, he was always eager about it. So you'll ask God to help you to worship as you ought. You'll meditate on Christ. You'll pray like, like I prayed this afternoon, like prayer like that. You know, God visit us when we come together to worship you today. Uh, we want to meet with you. Really looking forward to uh, our upcoming series in the Song of Solomon, um, where we're going to be talking about our eagerness to meet the Lord and Him coming, skipping across the mountains to come to us, that kind of thing. It's a, some beautiful pictures. But yeah, get ad- adequate re- rest and, uh, you know, there are always things that you can, you can try to do. I mean, one of the things I've, I find helpful if I'm tired, I'm, I'm often up here, but if I'm in the pew, which I sometimes am, then, uh, you know, I take, I take notes just because it helps me to think about what's going on and to keep me alert. I sometimes don't even read the notes, but it just, it's something, and, and it's different for different people. I have this crazy mind that wanders off into a thousand different directions. And so I need something like that or I'll find myself way off in another world in the middle of a sermon. I'm, I'm way over in another place. So, you know, there's that kind of thing. You need to know who you are and what will, will help you. The point is not that everyone should take notes too, but the point is that you need to find out what works for you and don't be indifferent about the fact that you're coming before God. You don't want to trample his courts. 
with a lame and blemished sacrifice. Find remedies. That's what you do when you're into stuff. You find remedies. You're creative. You look for solutions. You're before God who redeemed you. So that describes the manner in which we are to come. Okay, continuing steadfastly. Now let's look at what we're to do. That, uh, what has God given us to do in our worship? We can see this in the example of the fledgling church too in that same verse. They were under the direction of the apostles who led them in the worship that Jesus appointed. And here are four ordinances of worship that they continued steadfastly in. First, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. The apostles had some marvelous teaching. I don't mean to say that they were skilled speakers. They were not professional orators. They did have some in that day, and Paul said he was certainly not one. But they had a message that was burning within them, a message that Jesus had given to them, a message that they were able to speak by the power and working of the Holy Spirit so that every word they spoke was of God a message of the utmost importance that Jesus had commanded them to preach in all the world, a message that they themselves had just recently come to fully understand, a message about Jesus and how God sent him into the world to redeem his people from their sins by making a sacrifice of atonement. After walking with Jesus for three years, seeing him do miracles, seeing how holy he was in every situation, seeing and hearing his wisdom, having been often corrected by him, having heard his voice from, or God's voice from heaven declaring that Jesus was his beloved son, having heard the most gracious words they ever heard from his lips, and at the same time, the most terrifying words of God's judgment. And now having seen him crucified, and at first not understanding why he was crucified, being puzzled by that, and then seeing how he was raised from the dead, and then understanding that he himself was the Lamb of God that God sent to take away the sin of the world, and having grasped by the Holy Spirit the significance of the fact that he was the Son of God who was sent from heaven and punished for our sins to receive the terrible judgment that we deserved and everybody else deserved, they had a message that they were eager to preach to the people and to the nations. The Jews had believed in Jesus when Peter preached at Pentecost. And they they had the privilege of hearing that wonderful news that God Almighty was reconciled to them through Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified, and that he would pardon them even for that if they asked him. You had better believe that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They loved that doctrine They wanted to learn all about this Savior. They understood God as they had never understood Him before, and they could not get enough of it. They wanted to serve Him, and they wanted to learn to observe all that He had commanded. So whenever the apostles were preaching, they were there taking in every word. That's what it means that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. And what about you? Should you be any different than these Jews who believed at Pentecost? You will say, but we don't have the apostles here to preach to us today. And that's true. They died and they went to be with Jesus long ago. But the Lord knows how to do things. 
and he arranged it that they and those who heard them would record memoirs of their doctrines. We call these memoirs the Holy Scriptures, which means the sacred writings, because they come from God. Jesus enabled them to write words by the Holy Spirit so that their teaching was a record of everything that God wants us to know about Jesus Christ, his work, his commandments, all his doctrine without error. They gave it to us without any error as God's holy word. So that means that we have the apostles' doctrine today contained in the Holy Scriptures. God did this for us so that we can know Jesus through the words of the apostles, which are now recorded there for us in the Bible. And the Lord has preserved that book over the years, over the generations, over the centuries, so that nothing has been lost. He has seen to that. And one of the things that Jesus commanded was that the apostles should teach other men so that these men could then also teach others. The plan of Jesus was that his doctrine, which at Pentecost was the apostles' doctrine, would keep on being taught in the world until he returns at the end of the age. And our Lord gives the Holy Spirit to these men so that they can understand and teach his word. And he gives his spirit to those who hear so that they can receive the teaching, so that it will get a hold of them the way it got hold of the Jews at Pentecost when they believed. When the Spirit works with the Word, you're able to see that it's all true. You're convinced of your sin and how much you need Jesus to save you. You're able to understand His Word and to follow Him. He gives you grace to be godly and to live a new life. He gives you a love for His commandments. And he gives you faith in the good news of Jesus' salvation. He enables you to love God and to love others as he continues to work in you. He gives you a hunger for the apostles' doctrine as is preached by those ministers that he has given to his church. Not so much because they're great speakers, they're often not, but because the message that they preach is the truth about Jesus, the Savior of the world. Of course you ought to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine today. You know you ought to be hungry for this word. You ought to pray for those who preach it and to pray for you as you come to hear it. You are to welcome it eagerly when it is preached and then you are to take it into your life and practice it. As Jesus said, to learn to observe what he has commanded. Such a sad thing that many churches throughout the history of the church have given preaching the preaching of the word a back seat to other things it's like hezekiah the very temple that had been set up they weren't even using it they had rubbish in there you have to, you you have seen that and it ought to break your heart when you see that that preaching is set aside we receive jesus by faith faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god it comes by the preaching of the doctrine of the apostles never let that take a back seat to anything The Apostles' Doctrine is the first thing that we're told to continue steadfastly in, but it's not the only thing. Secondly, we're told to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Fellowship. I just want to comment here that with this one fellowship, it's a little bit harder to know exactly what this is referring to, but I think we have a pretty good general idea because we look at other scriptures to to get a hold of it. And so um, these things could be taught 
in a, in a slightly different way. For example, I'm going to talk about um, singing under fellowship, but it could be under prayers as well, where we, it's kind of a, a praising of God. You could, some of these things could go in different places, but we know that singing is something that we're to do in the New Testament. So I just wanted to clarify that with you. But we're told that we're to continue in the apostles' fellowship. And the one thing we know is that the word fellowship, koinonia, which it means association. So what does that mean? They continued in their fellowship. It means that they actually joined into the fellowship of the apostles. As soon as they believed, they became official members. We're told in verse 41 how they that gladly received the word were baptized with the result that they were added to them, added to the church, to the fellowship or the association of God's people. It was not a loose connection. Okay? Those that joined could be counted. Okay? You could count how many were there. They did count them. It was an association that had an organizational structure. This is important with officers and members. Jesus is the head of the association. All authority belongs to him to regulate the fellowship and what is done in the fellowship. The apostles were the first officers that were directly appointed by him. They were responsible to lead the meetings according to his commandments and to see that all was followed by the members. They were responsible to receive members and to remove members according to the terms of membership that Christ had established. Profession of faith and baptism for admittance and refusal to repent of heresy or sin for, uh, that would, would lead to um, suspension and expulsion if there was no repentance. The apostles also laid out the pattern for the church to appoint other officers namely elders and deacons. They gave us guidelines of how that was to be done to maintain the association, to oversee the association in every place and to continue in the ages to come so that it could go on from generation to generation. Now, what is the purpose then of this fellowship of the apostles or this association? Essentially, it is to associate those who believe with Jesus and to, to establish fellowship with him and with his people as those who are called out and redeemed from the world to be his disciples. John speaks of the fellowship in this way in his first epistle. 1 John 1.3, he says that, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Those who join this fellowship continue in fellowship with Jesus. In the fellowship of the truth, they confess the truth with him in the greater assembly of his, as they gather in the assembly of his people. They're identified, you see, with those who believe these things. We're con- we, we, we gather as a confessing people and we join in the praise of, to God for the gospel. In the fellowship of praise, they sing praise with Jesus in the midst of the assembly. In Hebrews 2.12, Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brethren. So there is the declaration of God and what he has done in his way of salvation. Then he says, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. 
And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So there's a, the, the, this singing with him in fellowship with him and with one another. We join in fellowship to praise God. Hebrews 10.25 speaks of the assembly as the place where we encourage one another in our meeting together in this way. Hebrews 13, 15 through 17 speaks of the fellowship of praise, of sharing of our goods, and of obedience, that we, we have this holy association of his people. It says, Hebrews 13, 15, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So our singing. But do not forget to do good and to share for such sacrifices God is well pleased. That's our offering. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So there's a fellowship of obedience in, in the, to, to those that Christ has appointed to represent him. This fellowship of the apostles is something that you're to continue steadfastly in. As we saw from John's word, our fellowship is not only with one another, but it's with the Father and the Son, with Jesus Christ. He is the one who appointed the officers, the elders, to oversee his church and to represent him on earth. You cannot be in fellowship with Jesus if you reject his officers. And that's what a lot of people want to do today. Sadly, many people are hesitant to join the church. They don't want the responsibility that comes with that part of the official association. They want to go and come as they please and not be attached to anything. Just like a lot of people don't want to get married for that reason. They don't want any kind of commitment or any kind of attachment. Perhaps they're afraid that they will be hurt. And it's true. You risk getting hurt. If you enter into association, if you marry someone, there's a chance you could get hurt from that. And if you join into an association of people, you could get hurt because you have a commitment to each other. There's a bond. There's something there. And it can be severed. It can be abused. It can be broken. And it is abused. I won't tell you, join the fellowship of the church. You're never going to have any problems. You may very well have problems. But you see, there is no reason because of bad members and people that abuse others and do things like that, that come into the fellowship of God's people. There is, that's no reason to reject the fellowship that Jesus Christ has appointed for him and his people. It's not a reason that we, we can use in that way. He will even use such times to strengthen your relationship with God to strengthen you, to strengthen his true saints. The problem is in refusing to enter the association with Christ as established with his church, you're refusing association with Christ himself. You're rejecting the way that he set up fellowship for his people on the earth. Our confession rightly says that there is no ordinary possibility for salvation outside of the visible church. Not all members are saved, not only, in, in, but not, not all the members are saved, but only in extraordinary cases are persons who are outside of the visible church saved. Don't settle, though, for mere entry and continuance in the fellowship of the church. Remember, you're to continue steadfastly in that fellowship. 
Don't forsake the assembly. Sing praises with gusto. Give your tithes, your offerings cheerfully. Confess your name, God's name, with your brothers and sisters in the church. Be an encouragement to them. Okay, so these early disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the apostles' fellowship. Now let's look at the third thing on the list. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of the bread. I have translated the phrase with the definite articles because it's found that way in the original. It's not just the breaking of bread, like that's how it's translated in our Bible, but it should be the breaking of the bread. Why is that important? It's significant because the phrase, the breaking of bread, could mean simply that they ate meals with each other, which they did. It's mentioned in a lower verse. But when you include the definite article with the word bread, it makes it clear that it's referring to the Lord's Supper, the bread. Even without the article, it would be a little odd to say that they continued steadfastly in eating. Like that's... uh, Most people do continue steadfastly in eating because they don't get on very well if they don't eat. But when you have the breaking of the bread, it makes it clear that it's talking about the Lord's Supper, even more clear. We're not told how often they partook of the Lord's Supper here in this verse, but it appears to have been definitely a very regular part of their worship. Otherwise, how could it be said that as soon as they believed that they continued steadfastly in the breaking of the bread. If this was only done, say, once a year. You know, they, they, here were these new disciples, they'd just been baptized, and they continued steadfastly in the breaking of the bread next year, you know, or, or a year from now, because they did it the past Easter, so it'd be still almost a year away. That, that would be an odd way of describing it. When we look elsewhere in the New Testament, it's also clear that it was very regular and even weekly. For example, in Acts 20, verse 7, it is referred to as something the church gathered to do on the first day of the week. Of course, the first day is Sunday. It says that Paul waited until the first day of the week when the disciples gathered to break bread. So it was their custom to do this. And we also have Paul's rebuke in 1 Corinthians 11, because they were not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper as they ought to have been doing. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, he says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's not saying it shouldn't be. He's saying it's not. You're not doing, doing this. It should have been, but it was not. They had turned the sacred meal into a common meal. They're getting together and just eating a, a regular meal and getting, someone were getting drunk even. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? In other words, have your common meals at home, not in the sacred assembly. You're not gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper. You're gathering together to have a common meal. You should be gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, this is something that we are to steadfastly continue in as well. And no wonder Jesus appointed this supper for us to eat in remembrance of him. The great problem with the church has been what? that we forget that we were purged from our sins by Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, that we have been cleansed from our sin by Jesus and that we have life through him alone. It seems crazy that we should forget the central truth of our faith. But if you look around, you see that many churches have forgotten that that's how they're reconciled to God. The Lord's Supper is given to reset our focus on Jesus and what he did 
so that we don't deteriorate into a mere social community or a mere service community. We are about Jesus who was crucified for sinners. We're not a social club. We're not a service club primarily. We're a redemptive community. It's about Jesus, our Savior. Come each week then with a heart that is prepared to feast on Jesus with a rejoicing and grateful and hungry heart, eager to remember, eager to receive life from him and to give thanks and find rest in him. And now we come to the fourth thing that's listed. We're to continue steadfastly in the prayers of the church. Interestingly, the word prayer also has the definite article here, which points to the fact that this speaks of public prayer. That's one of the reasons that in the morning worship after the sermon, I I have in there the prayers, because they continued steadfastly in the prayers. So we're to have our private prayers in secret, but we're to pray, we're to pray each day in our families as well, but we're to pray with each other when we're together. Prayer is something that we're to do in the public assembly. There is great emphasis in the on the church gathering for prayers. They had special prayer meetings, for example, when they prayed uh, after Peter and John had been beaten by the authorities and they gathered together to pray. And they had their regular times of prayer in the assembly. Prayer is the means that the Lord has appointed for us to engage him to work among his people. You see, God does not want to work among his people when they don't pray for this simple reason. Whenever he works without our praying, we don't acknowledge him. We think it just happened. We do not recognize his hand, that he is the, only, that he is the one who worked in our midst. We think it was us. But when we pray, and when we pray earnestly, then we're looking to him to work. And we give him the glory when he does, or at least we should. Sometimes we don't even then. But it's much more likely for us to, at least we have the right structure. Also, when we pray, we realize that we don't deserve to have him work among us. We pray and we remember that, uh, Lord, I'm unworthy of your mercies. God, therefore, often waits to act until his people see how much they need him. If they're not praying, it's clear that they don't see that. He doesn't want to be anonymous. He wants us to know him and to delight in his love and mercy, to give thanks to him. That's why what James says is so true. We have not because we ask not. If we're not asking, God's going to withhold from us what he might otherwise have given us. It's a great privilege to have access to God through Jesus Christ so that God welcomes our prayers because of Christ. We have an audience with the God of heaven. This is not something either to do in a lackluster, half-hearted, on-and-off manner. We're to give ourselves to it the way these early disciples did. In fact, as we have seen today, we're to give ourselves to all four of these ordinances of our Lord. We're to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, in Apostles' Fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers. This is the worship that God has given to us to fully give ourselves to in the New Testament. May the Lord help us to do so. Please stand and let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us and that you have called us to be your disciples and your servants. And we thank you that in your dealings with us that you have given us ordinances of worship, things that you have appointed for us to do so that we don't have to decide each time we come to you what we might do this time. You have given us what we need as a structure, and we pray, Lord, that we would stick to what you have appointed and that we would do it, not only continue in it, but we would continue steadfastly in it. We thank you, Lord, for the preaching of the word that by which we learn about you, we learn about your ways, we learn what you've done for us, we learn the calling that we have before you. We thank you that you have also given us to the, the, the fellowship and we pray that we would continue steadfastly in that, that we would sing together, that we would lift up our voices to you, Lord, in praise and honor, that we would confess your name together as your people, that we would give to the support of the church and that we would be in fellowship with each other, that we would, we would work together, Lord, and that we would work in, the, in coordination with the officers that you have appointed and realize that it is the fellowship of the apostles that we are to be uh, a part of. Lord, we also um, pray that you would help us to be blessed at the Lord's Supper. We thank you that you have given us this, that we might keep Christ at the center of things, Christ crucified at the center of things, that we might know that this is how our relationship with you is established, is through him, through faith in him who was crucified. And we pray, Lord, that our prayers would be true and real and that we would bring them before you in the assembly, that we would lift up as one voice our prayers together as your people. Help us, O oh Lord, to do these things in a way that pleases you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with your fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you, that he may incline your hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded your fathers. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.